This is the Padverb Podcast, and I am your host, KMO. In this episode of the podcast, I am going to talk to the author of the book, The Memory Thief, and the secrets behind how we remember. The book is by Laura Nagiri, and it is a finalist for the 2022 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Reading from the book's website, sometimes it's not the discovery that's hard, it's convincing others you're right. The Memory Thief chronicles an investigation into a rare and devastating amnesia in a cluster of fentanyl overdose survivors. After many blind alleys and occasional strokes of good luck, doctors prove that opioids can damage the hippocampus, the brain's memory center, a discovery that may have implications for millions around the world. Laura Nagiri, the author, is an award-winning science journalist who has produced documentaries, short-form video series, podcasts, interactive games, and blogs for the PBS series Nova. She has covered everything from asteroids to human origins to art restoration, but is particularly fascinated by the brain. Nagiri's articles on memory and addiction have appeared in STAT, the Boston Globe Ideas section, Undark, The Atlantic, The Scientist, and PBS. The Memory Thief is her first book. So here's my conversation with Lauren Aguirre. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and I am joined by science journalist Lauren Aguirre, who is the author of a new book called The Memory Thief. And as is my habit, I have not memorized the entire title of the book. So Lauren Aguirre, welcome to the podcast. And what's the full title of your book? The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember a Medical Mystery. And thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, it is my pleasure. You have written a book that's about a topic that's very important to me. Uh, memory, I think we should probably start with you talking about the uh, the incident that really set you on this path. It's um, a, a frightening and fascinating one to start with, I think. So um, I, about 10 years ago or so, was um, happily working away early one morning, as many of us do, and really out of the blue, this sort of feeling of um, dread um, came over me, and I had no kind of idea where I was, who I was, you know, what century I was in. I was suddenly just dropped into this unfamiliar void. Um, and so my uh, senses still worked, you know, I, I, I could see the green walls, but nothing of it made sense because I, you know, I had no kind of identity. And so it was really so frightening that I lay down on the floor face first and just sort of waited for it to pass. And, uh, and when it did, I was really exhausted. And um, I thought, wow, I've got a terrible ear infection. <laughs> um, so I took myself to the doctor for that. And she said, oh, no, um, that was a seizure. So, you know, that launched this whole encounter with doctors who eventually found that I have a, a brain abnormality that was causing these seizures. Um, so I, you know, I took took medicine, I declined surgery, and I've been fine um, ever since. But it, it definitely sort of set me off on this path of how fascinating it is that brains can suddenly uh, misbehave, that you could have this thing inside your head that, you know, hasn't done anything to you for years and years, and then suddenly it manifests itself. Um, and it, it was also the incident that um, sort of introduced me to the main scientist in my book, Jed Barish. Uh, because he was a neighbor 
and a neurologist. And so I asked him to look at my brain scan and ask, you know, should I have surgery? And he's very practical and very pragmatic. And he said, no, um, you're fine. Just take your medicine and you'll be fine. And um, so that his sort of cautious approach uh, really stuck with me so that when he found this cluster of people with this very strange injury, I kind of trusted that he was he was on to something important. Well, we'll talk about that whole unfolding mystery. I mean, the, the term mystery, I think, is in the title of your book. Uh, and it sort of plays out as um, not a murder mystery, because nobody's been murdered, but, you know, as as an investigation. And it, it the book, I have to say, when I first started reading it, it really comes across uh, as a novel, you know, initially. And it's it's very captivating for being presented that way. But I'd like to know a little bit more about your um, your seizure. Like, what time of day did it happen? What were you doing? Uh, what was the context in which it arose? So I was just working on my computer. You know, I think I was answering emails. It was much too early in the morning to be working. <laughs> and so this is, it's called an aura. And um, it's often the prelude to a full-blown seizure, which I never had. And it's just a premonition or a sense of deja vu that you have done exactly this thing at some time in the past. And you sort of know it can't be real. Um, you know, I had one of those in the supermarket and I was holding a bunch of bananas by the scale. And I thought I have stood in exactly this spot, looking at these bananas, preparing to weigh the bananas before. And you just know that's not true. And, <laughs> um, so I had been having those kind of episodes, but this one uh, kind of went from deja vu to jamais vu, which is French for never before been seen, oh. where you just, nothing is recognizable. So you have no memory of anything around you. It's like you've just got suddenly plunked down into, into a new space. Um, so it, it sort of went from being, where am I to what's, I remember thinking, what century is this? And then, and then who am I? I'm actually getting shivers right now, just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> because it just, I mean, the idea that you've lost yourself is, is terrifying. Um, and of course that's, you know, that's what happens in the later stages of, of Alzheimer's, which is also a topic I discuss at length in my book. Um, so that also sort of gave me a more visceral uh, feeling of uh, understanding a little bit what that would feel like. I mean, for me, it was a minute or two, um, but for others, it, it becomes the rest of their life. Well, I think we all have some passing experience um, of that, not as not as serious and, and demanding as what you're describing, but I've moved around a lot over the course of my life, lived in many states and various countries. And um, a lot of times when I wake up in the morning and, you know, in my dreams, my dreams are a mix of fantastical places and also places that I've been. But again, there's a great many of them. And so I'll, I'll wake up and open my eyes. And sometimes I know exactly where I am and what the context of my life is. And sometimes I don't. And it's a few seconds, usually, where I'm just waiting for that thing, you know, all those details to resolve themselves. But I could imagine a, a rising sense of panic if, you know, they didn't, if that didn't come into focus. That would be really um, not just frightening, but I think debilitating. Yes. And it's actually, um, I, I wrote about that in the book um, in terms of one of the patients who winds up um, participating in, in research study. Um, where he just, after this um, overdose, he just had no memory 
of what had happened. So he still, again, recognized his, his surroundings, but once he was sent to the hospital, like it just didn't make sense because it was an unfamiliar place and he just couldn't retain the memory of where he was or why he was there. So it was that constant, like, please, I need to know what this is and why I'm here. And it just never happened. So there are a great many movies about amnesia. In fact, there's a Wikipedia page for them that I was looking at this morning. And it lists a lot of films that you wouldn't think of as being about amnesia, like RoboCop. You know, is that a movie about amnesia? Well, if you think about the, the details of the character, yeah, he, he doesn't really remember his life before being RoboCop and he gets flashes and things like that. But amnesia is sort of a romantic framing device for fiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a subgenre of that is the bad person who gets amnesia and becomes a better person. But those movies are almost always about retrograde amnesia, which is to say you can't remember what happened before. But what you're going to be describing in the coming minutes and what's in your book is anterograde amnesia, where you can't form new memories. And about the only movie I can think of that deals with that is Memento. And in that film, it's very clear that this is not any sort of romantic, um, you know, situation to find yourself in, that it's not really an opportunity for self-discovery. It is really just constantly being lost in an unfamiliar present. So, um, and I've, I've heard radio stories about not people that you have described in the book, but other people who have this sort of amnesia. And yes, they will ask the exact same question time and again. It's just there's their brain is not updating. And it's it's frightening and disconcerting to the people around them and to people who, like me who are just this, you know, abstracted at a distance in time um, observer. It really makes me question, you know, how how alive we really are and how, you know, we we can, under certain circumstances, behave very robotically. Um, it it kind of diminishes the, the sense of humanity. It makes it seem like it's really tenuous and, and vulnerable. Yes. The people in my book who um, have overdosed on fentanyl and developed um, amnesia, it's anterograde amnesia. So they still remember everything about their past, sort of maybe up to just before the event. Um, they know who they are, um, you know, they know what job they did, what their name is, all of that. They just can't lay down any new memories. So they are stuck in this sort of never ending present. Um, one of the most fascinating things I learned about um, amnesia and the role of memory, specifically what we talk about when we think about the memory that matters to us is episodic memory, kind of the events of our lives, um, is that people with amnesia they can't, it's not just that they can't form new memories. They actually have a lot of trouble with imagination and with forward thinking, imagining a future that's different from the past. And when you think about it, that is really, really an important part of, of, of being human is to be able to, to predict new things and to imagine something like getting to the moon. Um, if you can't imagine, well, we never would have done that. So um, we do like to think of that as, as uniquely human, and I, I'm sure other smart animals do something sort of similar. But um, in one experiment with people with amnesia, this um, professor in, in the UK, Eleanor McGuire, had people try to describe um, a scene on a beach. She said, just you know, paint me a picture, imagine you're at the beach. And um, the people with amnesia, their, their vision was so impoverished, like, 
what they had was what we call semantic knowledge, like the fact that beaches have sand and that you usually go to them when they're sunny and there might be seagulls. But that was all they could do. They couldn't create a story. Like I went to the beach because, um, you know, I wanted to go there with my child and then this boat came along and someone jumped off. They can't tell a story. And um, I think storytelling is truly, you know, one of the defining traits of, of humans and something we hold near and dear. So it's sort of bad enough to say that you can't remember what happened, you know, two minutes ago or five minutes ago, but imagine not being able to imagine. Yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, humanity and what we do, we, we organize, we communicate with one another so we can coordinate our actions and we think about the future and we play out what if scenarios, you know, what if we do this, what will the result be? And that's basically our superpower, you know, as an organism. And uh, without that, we are much diminished. Right. Right. So you've mentioned repeatedly, and I, I haven't followed up or, you know, um, put us on that track yet, but the, the book, you know, in the book, you are recounting the uh, investigation into these rare cases of people who have enterograde amnesia that comes on after a fentanyl overdose. And there's an enormous amount to explore there, both culturally and sociologically and psychologically and, uh, you know, cognitively. And it, it's such a vast field. But one of the things that made it difficult for the, the researchers was the fact that people who take fentanyl, you know, deliberately, they're the sorts of folks who keep their activities secret, you know, for practical reasons. And they're also sort of shunned in our society. And uh, it, it's not a, a topic of polite conversation or anything that you want to talk about, you know, with a personal connection. So how did that play a role in the, um, the unfolding medical investigation? Well, there were so many barriers to trying to figure out what happened to these people. It was almost like, you know, someone had tried to make it really hard and it's already hard in medical science to kind of unravel some new syndrome. But um, as you said, um, this is definitely a stigmatized group of people, even though we, we like to think we're, we're sympathetic and we understand that it's, it's a sort of a disease or a disorder um, and that they deserve as much sympathy as anyone else. But I'm convinced that if this thing were happening to kids, there would have been a very different response. So yes, it's people who have overdosed on fentanyl, but often they weren't intentionally taking fentanyl. And this is increasingly the case that fentanyl is being mixed with other so-called street drugs like Xanax. Um, so people don't know they're taking it and they often will show up in the hospital and think they just took cocaine. Um, and they weren't tested for fentanyl because fentanyl just isn't routinely tested for, it's an expensive test. So um, that's one barrier. Another barrier is um, often people with a substance use disorder don't wanna stick around in the hospital. So as soon as they are stabilized and it's clear that they're not gonna die, they will leave. Um, there's also, um, so there's the testing, there's the stigma, there's the people not, not necessarily wanting to stick around. Um, and then there's also this much bigger problem of people often have trouble recognizing something new that doesn't fit with what they thought they knew, um, which is kind of ironic because really the whole process of science is learning something new. But this mystery is kind of at the intersection of 
two public health crises, Alzheimer's disease and opioid addiction. And it just kind of didn't make sense. Like it didn't fit into anyone's bucket. And I would often find in speaking with doctors, they'd say, well, why doesn't everyone who overdoses on fentanyl develop this? It can't be real. And I, that's a really good question. And they're still trying to figure out why is it only a very small percentage of people who overdose on fentanyl that get this? And then the other legitimate uh, skepticism is, well, fentanyl causes you to suppress your breathing. That's why people die when they overdose on fentanyl. And that hurts this part of the brain that got damaged in these people, which is the hippocampus, which is very roughly speaking, the memory center of the brain, although there is no memory, but it's sort of the coordinator of memories or the, the place where the keys to memory are stored. But interestingly, when I spoke with neuroscientists and I, I explained this, they were kind of off and running like, oh, that makes sense. That's so interesting. And we, we should look into more what opioids in general are doing to people, not just, not just fentanyl. So those are just some of the barriers. And then there's the barrier of communication because as it turned out, once they found the first four cases and the Department of Public Health put out a, a query to doctors saying, if you've seen this, uh, let us know. Within minutes, they were hearing back from people. So all of these neurologists had seen someone like that, didn't know what to make of it, and just sort of filed it away in the back of their mind. Um, and that, that probably happens all the time, that someone, you know, a doctor doesn't know what to make of a case. And it's not until someone else and someone else and someone else sees it that they say, oh, this is something real. What's going on here? Another barrier to the investigation was just the fact that your lead investigator, your, your main character, I would say, even though he's a real person, uh, Dr. Barish, he had a very demanding job that, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him to see a lot of patients and it just didn't leave a lot of time for him to uh, investigate, you know, something novel like this. Yeah, it was interesting. It was really kind of a, a guerrilla science is the way I think of it, because Initially, you know, no one who was involved was getting paid for this work. It was all done, you know, emails late at night, text messages, hallway conversations, um, searching through literature. Um, and it was so it was really just a labor of love for, for Barish and others who recognized that, you know, this is a stigmatized group of people who aren't getting paid attention to. And also, this is something really new and really strange uh, that we've never seen before. And that really kind of demands an investigation. Like why, what have we missed? What have we not understood about opioids and the hippocampus specifically that might be useful someday in the future? So there's sort of two things like people to whom this happens deserve the dignity of, of a diagnosis, not just, we have no idea what happened to you, you know, go home and drink a lot of water, which is what, happened to one of the patients. So there's that. And then there's also, you know, once we understand this vulnerability, can we turn that around and, and use that understanding to protect our memories? Now the, the investigation has gotten to the point where people are doing research funded by the NIH. You know, it's their job. And it still will be many, many years to keep studying this and trying to understand what it means. Um, but initially it really was just people wanting to figure it out. Well, something else that makes it difficult to uh, focus official attention on this is the fact that while in a few people, fentanyl does damage their hippocampus and, and give them interrograde amnesia, uh, for a lot of people, it just kills them. And, you know, that's certainly got to be the priority is to save lives. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts was was very aware of that. The person I interviewed said, you know, it's kind of like worrying about the deck chairs, the arrangement of the deck chairs when the Titanic is going down. So this, again, was not a research project that any kind of significant money was spent on. And um, it is, as I said before, valuable to understand what's happening mechanistically so that we can um, better understand what damages the brain. So yes, we need to focus a lot of uh, resources on dealing with the fentanyl crisis, but it's not really an either or kind of situation. We also need to understand better how memory can be damaged because this is a problem that affects far more people than the number of people who are overdosing on, on fentanyl. A nice thing about your your narrative is that it's a contemporary narrative, but where necessary, you take trips back in time. And um, one thing that you point out in the book is that while the functions of the brain have been pretty much a complete mystery until just the last few decades, people have been studying brain anatomy for centuries. And the hippocampus has been known since what, the 1500s? Right. Right. So, um, there's a, a rather disturbing story about, you know, a doctor's performing some, to my mind, rather cavalier and unwarranted um, experimental surgery, which, you know, at one person's great cost taught us what the hip, hippocampus does. I was wondering if you'd uh, recount that. Sure. So that's the story of, of H.M. Uh, now we know his name. It's Henry Melison. Um, but he suffered from really, really severe epilepsy. And no amount of drugs were succeeding in, in stopping those seizures. So his quality of life was, was really poor. And so this somewhat swashbuckling neurosurgeon, you described William Scoville, he had some reason to think, based on other research, that the hippocampus could be the part of the brain causing the trouble. But normally, when you want to do surgery on someone with epilepsy to remove the abnormal brain tissue you search for the source of the seizure so that you're removing that brain tissue and nothing else. And, and you keep the person awake while you're doing that surgery. So you make sure you don't damage speech or anything else. Well, Scoville couldn't find the source of the seizures, but he assumed it was the hippocampus. And we say the hippocampus, but there are actually two mirror image on uh, one on either side of the brain. And he removed both of them. So that was what was truly experimental. Removing one hippocampus had been done in the past and people still had their memories. And so it did cure Henry's seizures. But from that point forward, he had complete enterograde amnesia. And his memory for the past was also pretty poor. He knew sort of facts, but he didn't have a great sense of... His, his memory was lacking in kind of clarity and detail. They weren't stories which goes back to this idea of the hippocampus sort of being a storyteller. But because he couldn't form new memories, this was how they said, oh, wow, the hippocampus is essential for memory. The hippocampus is the memory center of the brain. Um, and Henry was studied for many decades after and until he passed away. But his, his memory, because he'd lost most of the hippocampus, really never returned. He could never learn anything new, including researchers who worked with him for decades. Every time they came into the room, he was a new person. So he was 
I think the most studied person in, in neuroscience. And we owe him a, a debt of gratitude, even though he probably didn't have much choice in the matter. He just agreed. But, you know, many other people with epilepsy and other diseases have helped move the fields forward by agreeing to participate in research often that they know will have no benefit to them. I'm just projecting myself into their position, but I imagine a lot of them, you know, feel uh, like they're a burden because, you know, they, they don't have the full range of capacities that most people do. And any way that they could be helpful is something they would probably want to take advantage of just for their own, you know, sense of self-worth. Right. Sense of meaning. And, and also some people, um, if they have really severe memory problems, they're very isolated. You know, they can't go out. So um, the chance to, you know, go to a research center and be part of communicating with people and helping is very meaningful for them. Although by the time they get there, they don't remember <laughs> that they agreed to go or why they're there. It's true. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, you know, that sort of impairment, one thing that really surprised me, I mean, this, this is a, uh, a syndrome that is brought about by opioid uh, overdose. And one of the, the patients that you described, even though he had this very severe um, anterograde amnesia, was still using drugs. And I thought, how could he buy drugs? I mean, how do you find somebody selling heroin if you can't remember, you know, what your intention was five minutes ago? And if you can't make new associations, like you don't remember new people that you've met, it just seems like um, the triumph of, you know, absolute determination. Well, so these people had, you know, severe anterograde amnesia immediately after the event. Some of them actually slowly got better. And you might be referring to... Um, I'm not sure which which person you're actually referring to, but I probably wouldn't even know if you said the name. There's a lot of people mentioned in the book, and I didn't keep them all straight. The main person who I focused on, who I opened the book with, um, following his overdose, he still has severe amnesia. You know enough to be um, categorized as someone with Alzheimer's disease, but it's really limited to memory, and it's also sort of limited to a very specific type of memory spatial memory, story memories, but it's not absolute. You know, he still has a hippocampus. It's just very damaged. He'll never remember where his car is, uh, but he remembers who I am. There's been enough repetition that he, he gets that. But, you know, if he's, he's working with people, he has to take notes. He had a job um, for a while as, as a gatekeeper at a senior living center. And just to remember kind of the protocol, or who went in, he just took notes all the time. And in that way was very successful because his executive function is amazing. You know, his ability to organize things so that he can keep track of things is what gets him through. And in fact, he's now in grad school getting a degree in clinical social work, which is truly remarkable given the level of memory impairment that he has. But he does learn some new things. He learns concepts. So you've you've distinguished between uh, semantic memory, which is concepts or your knowledge about the world, and episodic memory, which is the things that you know you live through that happen to you. I know personally that my semantic memory is much much better than my um, episodic memory. I'll get together with friends from years ago and we'll compare stories, and they will tell stories which sound plausibly like they're about me, but I have absolutely no recollection of that thing. Whereas I'm always jamming facts into my head, you know, in preparation for interviews. <laughs> 
But I, somebody who has this anterograde amnesia, they, they're not forming new episodic memories, but it sounds like they can form new uh, semantic memories or, you know, acquire new information about the world that's just not attached to a story that they live through. Yes, and there are very few black and white things here. Like, if you lose your entire hippocampus, you will not be able to form new memories of any type. But, um, you know, if you have just some damage, it's going to be some impairment. I actually wrote a glossary for the end of the book because I had so much trouble with all these definitions which have hard borders and, and there just aren't hard borders. I mean, you, your semantic memory was kind of created from off, in oftentimes multiple interactions with a story or you know, your procedural memory, your ability to ride a bicycle was created out of episodic memories of, uh, okay, if I put my foot here and, and then I jump off quickly, I'll, I'll learn to ride the bike. And eventually that becomes a procedural memory that you don't, you don't need any episodic memory. So it's really better to think about it as memory systems that interact with each other. You know, that difference between uh, episodic memory and procedural memory, I recall now was an element in the movie Memento, where a character who was faking interrograde amnesia, uh, also, he didn't really know how to fake it because he was pretending not to be able to make new procedural memories that, you know, should have developed because he was getting shocked for doing this action over and over again. And he kept repeating, you know, and, and voluntarily becoming shocked because he was trying to collect on insurance, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the investigator discovered that, you know, that was that was a memory or a, a sort of learning that he should be capable of. And he wasn't because he was faking it, which I, I'm not asking you to comment on unless you're a big fan of that movie. Let's talk a little bit about your history before you you really focused in on this topic. You, you work for PBS. You work for a science program, uh, Nova. I've seen countless episodes of Nova. Had you specialized at all in, in memory or cognitive science before this? No, uh, because Nova is really an anthology series. So, um, you know, we cover anything from asteroids to art restoration to human origins. Those are just a few shows that I worked on. But I really was drawn to neuroscience. I mean, I, I love all science. I'm a science groupie. I love talking to scientists. But the brain, and I think partially because of my history with, uh, with epilepsy, was particularly interesting to me. And so um, when this story came along and I saw that it was a chance to really dig deeply uh, into one topic that was interesting to me, I decided to, to leave Nova so I could write this book. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I got here. Not to diminish Nova, but as I was reading the book, it really felt like an episode of Frontline to me. <laughs> Who is the, uh, the famous narrator of, of Frontline? Do you know his name? Oh, gosh, I'm... I know who you are talking about. Yeah, very distinctive voice and delivery pattern. I just kept hearing his voice in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in in your role as a, um, a science communicator, you're basically talking to learned specialists and hopefully getting information from them that you can then distill and present to you know a, a lay audience or a general audience. Right. What appeals to you about that? What are the challenges and what are the... Uh, how do you know that you've done it well? Uh, well, one of the things we used to sort of say that was we had done our research and it was time to stop and go make the film was when we're talking to one researcher and we tell her about someone else's research 
that could have an interesting connection and they haven't heard of it. So when you're starting to make connections that they haven't, you kind of, you've gone kind of as far as you reasonably need to go. And I just love, I mean, I always love science, but I always love storytelling. And I didn't feel like I had the persistence to just study one thing for 30 to 40 years. Um, so I really wanted to be able to kind of skip around to, to the highlights of science and understand how the process too, not just what the highlights are, but how they got there and what motivated them and you know what experiments were the kind of breakthroughs. But what was really interesting about writing this book was I started writing when the field was just beginning. Like normally for Nova, the thing has happened, the headlines have been out there and you go back and tell the story and you know how it's ending. But I didn't know how it was ending and it hasn't ended. Um, so I followed along with all the dead ends uh, and the barriers. And that I think was just as interesting. And it was important to me to, to keep those in there so that people understand that, you know, science does have a lot of dead ends and, and scientists have to make tough decisions sometimes. Like I've gone as far as I can go with this project. If I publish a paper, it's not gonna add to the discussion. It might, you know, just sort of muddy the waters. This isn't worth pursuing anymore. And that's hard to do as a scientist because, you know, you, you really need, the paper you published to help you get your next grant. Um, and you sort of have to keep doing, going down a certain track. So that was interesting about this story. Yeah, that's a that's a tough spot for a scientist to be in, to have one's uh, reputation invested in a very long investigation and you know a long defense of a hypothesis, only to come to the conclusion that, ah, it's probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and many people don't like just can't come to that conclusion. We uh, we worked on a film about restoring the Sistine Chapel because it was really brown. <laughs> all those beautiful paintings were brown. Well, they were brown because of all the you know candles that were burned in the chapel for centuries. But there was an art historian who had built his entire career on explaining the browns. And so when they started cleaning them and there were all these gorgeous pastels, he just couldn't wrap his brain around the fact that those were the original colors that Michelangelo intended. He just insisted that they were ruining the paintings. So yes, it's hard to give up when you've devoted your whole career to uh, a certain point of view. I forget the source of the quote, but there is that famous sort of nihilistic quote, uh, funeral by funeral theory advances. <laughs> good. I hadn't heard that. Oh, I, it's not mine. I just can't place it. Well, when you are communicating to a non-scientific audience about scientific topics, who are you aiming at? Who's your, your envisioned audience? Well, you're supposed to have a very targeted audience, but I really did want people who didn't understand any, any brain science, had no scientific training to be able to pick this book up and understand it. So I did have people read it who, who didn't know anything about cognitive science. Um, and I think having the, the narrative run all the way through it really helped people to stick with it and to be motivated to understand things because they cared about the people they were reading about. So I, I did really make a, an effort to weave back and forth between the narrative and the science. But I also wanted it to be um, of course, accurate and, and a fair representation of the field. And so I'm really gratified that 
all the neurologists and neuroscientists that I've heard back from really thought it was kind of a, a valuable synthesis and interpretation of the field. And in fact, um, one neuroscientist who works on um, sleep and memory and learning read the book and is now working on a research project with Barish and others to um, investigate the effect of opiates on learning, like the mechanism of how opiates can interact with the hippocampus in a way that makes learning difficult. That was really, as I said, gratifying to, to know that I could reach both of those audiences. Uh, I like very complicated uh, dramas like uh, Game of Thrones and now uh, House of the Dragon. And they are very complicated with, you know, a lot of lore that I'm just never going to keep straight. So I will watch the show for an hour and then I'll watch a couple hours worth of people explaining and unpacking the show and, you know, making connections to the books and things like that. And I, I really admire these shows in their ability to present a narrative that on the surface is engaging and entertaining and compelling, but which rewards repeat watching, which rewards, um, you know, extracurricular sort of investigation, uh, you know, um, auxiliary sources and things like that. And I, I wonder if there's an element of that in, in science reporting where you can craft your message in such a way that it will be of use to people who don't put a lot of effort into it. But for people who are really interested, there are additional layers to be unlocked in the reporting itself. Because, you know, you're always in competition with the World Wide Web. Like when I was reading your book, I enjoyed the narrative, but I also knew that I wasn't going to get through the whole book before I was going to speak to you. And the the web was just always calling to me. It's like, well, you know, you can keep reading a page at a time or you can just do a search, you know, and figure out how, or learn how this ended or, you know, what, what the state of the science is. And uh, I'm afraid the web, you know, won out in the end. But this question of, you know, multiple layers and creating something which is not only of use, but engaging to people who are bringing different backgrounds, different amounts of knowledge and, and different levels of energy to the project as an audience. Are you, are you writing, you know, in that multifaceted way? Yes. Um, and so I think uh, I got a few um, bad reviews on Goodread for people who just really wanted all the nitty gritty of, of memory and how it works. That would have been a very different book. Um, I'm not like wired to write a topical book that's just about a subject. It's just not who I am. So I needed to find a story that could then explore different aspects of the relevant science. So, yeah. And I, I think for Nova too, it was always about um, a story, an interesting topic, but also other layers like the music, um, the narrator, the visuals, like it, it has to work on multiple levels to draw in people um, who might respond to, to one facet of the way you're telling the story or another. By the way, I just looked up the uh, narrator for Frontline. <clears throat> His name is Will Lyman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned earlier, much earlier, that we all have experience of, uh, you know, memory, not necessarily memory loss or memory degradation, but it just not being there when we need it. Like, you know, if you're studying for a test and you're, you're trying to cram information into your brain that you will then be able to reproduce on command at a particular time, uh, that's one thing. You know, if it doesn't all come out the way you intended it to, it's understandable. But sometimes you can't bring to mind a word that is a common word that you use all the time. Or, you know, somebody whose name you really should know 
you know, and you were, you were totally embarrassed to ask them for the fifth time, you know, so you, you sort of compensate and, and just avoid saying their name or, you know, make up a nickname or something. Um, Hello. <laughs> hey, it's been a long time. How you doing? Yeah. Um, not sure what the question is about that other than, as you say, there, there are no, when it comes to the brain and cognitive science, there are very few hard limits that things, the, the edges of concepts are blurry, the, the edges of phenomena are quite blurry. And I would guess that the, um, the gradation between, you know, the, the normal frustration of coming up against the limits of an imperfect memory, you know, where that blends into uh, a diagnosable, you know, ailment is probably pretty fuzzy as well. And people who are clearly diagnosable, um, are still in some cases high functioning, you know, as, as you've described. Yeah. I think, you know, going to the forgetting people's names, anxiety plays a huge role in, in making uh, retrieving memory harder. So like if you had asked me about Will Lyman, you know, we were just sitting around a dinner table, I probably would have been able to come up with it. But, you know, I'm on a podcast and I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, what's his name? So there are many reasons that memory can fail that don't mean you have a bad memory. You might not have been paying attention in the first place. Um, you might just be in a different state of mind when someone's asking you about it and there aren't enough cues. You know, you walk down a street, let's say you know someone in one situation um, and then, you know, in your hometown of I live in Lexington and then you see them in Portugal. And you're like, who is this person? I don't remember their name because they just don't belong there. Um, so there are lots of reasons memory can fail. And sometimes, of course, forgetting things is really important. You know, if you remember every single thing, it's difficult to abstract out, you know, what is really important, what, what the concept is that you have to remember. So um, if that makes you feel any better, forgetting can be very good. <laughs> A strong memory is forgetting things that don't matter. I'm actually not so bothered by my memory loss anymore. You know, we have this notion that our memories are tied up with our identity, but I've been presented so many times with, you know, clear evidence of the just inadequacy of my memory, particularly when it comes to episodic, you know, episodic memory. I'm still me, <laughs> you know, I, it doesn't shake my sense of identity at all. Yeah. I have toyed with and, and been a, a participant in like, transhumanist discussions you know, over long periods. And there are people who seriously intend to live for hundreds and thousands of years. And it just seems to me, you know, in if you are going to live past 100 or 200, you're going to have to forget a lot of stuff and just not be too worried about it. Or, you know, offload that to some other memory storage device other than your brain. Uh, but, you know, you're you. You're always going to be you. Yeah you know, until you're somebody else. <laughs> it's just not a problem. I totally agree. I mean, I'm in awe of people who have, you know, really precise memories, eidetic memories. I just don't. Um, but yes, I'm still me. And, um, you know, I wish I had a better memory, but but it's fine. You know, we don't necessarily, when we remember something, we're not remembering the original event. We're often remembering, you know, our rehearsed story about it, or we're remembering the last time we remembered it. And there are stories that I've told again and again, uh, which seem to be, you know, really clear, solid memories in my mind. And then at some point, I will encounter some piece of evidence which says, no, you're not telling that story right. That doesn't fit. The timeline doesn't make sense. You know, you didn't know this person at that time. Um, 
so even the places where my memory seems really strong, I've, I've grown skeptical of it. Yeah, it's really disturbing to think that your most precious memories almost certainly have something incorrect because, you know, it's not like a like a recording that gets stashed away and then when you remember it, you pull it back out and play it. It's always being reconstructed in a new brain that has had many other experiences since and that might be just in a different state of mind at that point. You might be really depressed when you're remembering something that was initially sort of a happy memory and then you contaminate it with with your depression or you just interpret it differently and there are many um, memories that have similarities. So it's very easy if, if there's, they're similar to kind of incorporate a different memory into your memory, your newly resurfaced memory. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, when you were describing that, I was thinking of the example of um, when a relationship has gone bad and turned ugly, then your memories of when it was good have been contaminated. Yeah. Yeah, uh, very sad. Uh, let's talk about the the connection between emotion and memory. You've mentioned it in passing a few times, but I just invite you to uh, delve deeper into that topic. Hmm. I don't know that I have a lot more to say about it other than um, it does change how you interpret a memory depending on your current state of mind. Um, and then again, the anxiety makes it harder to remember. Yeah, I don't think I looked into that a whole lot while researching the book. Well, I certainly haven't studied this uh, in any systematic way, but it just occurs to me that, you know, people have um, patterns of persistent unwanted thought. Mm -hmm. You know, there are things they just can't stop thinking about, and they're often associated with trauma. Okay. And it seems to me that the traumatic event was so emotionally charged that the memories laid down were laid down very deeply. And... Um, you know, it's it's sort of a, a vicious mechanism whereby the thing that you'd really like to forget is the thing that you're least likely to forget because it is, it, it had such emotional weight behind it when the memory was created. Yeah, and actually, um, there's a researcher at Boston University, um, Steve Ramirez, whose work is in my book. He did some really famous work about 10, 12 years ago uh, using optogenetics where he basically implanted First, he tagged a memory of an event, like a shock in a cage, a gentle foot shock on a mouse. Um, and then he was able to um, bring that memory back to life by basically those neurons that were involved in the making of the memory had become tagged. So then when he shone light on, on the brain, that memory reactivated and, and the mouse remembered the fear memory. And then he was later able to um, contaminate a memory make a pleasant memory fearful by adding foot shocks. So he is actually really interested in the role of this kind of insight into memory formation and using it to try to treat disorders like depression or PTSD by sort of changing the valence of memories. You know, can you reactivate a, a scary memory and then add new information that kind of changes that and makes it less frightening? Of course, this is in mice, so it's way out there. But it's, it's um, interesting to know that at least that's possible in theory. And that's also the basis of talk therapy sometimes is the, um, you know, repeating traumatic events in a safer environment in the context of like a therapist's office. You mentioned a word in passing that is unfamiliar to me, optogenetic. Okay, so that's um, combining light and, and genes, basically 
inserting uh, a piece of code into the DNA that lights up when light is shined on it. So um, it's a code, I think, from algae. So, you know, when neurons are firing, they're kind of active and open for business, and you can insert this little bit of DNA in it. And then later, when you go back and shine light on it, you can see that neuron. And, and all the other neurons that weren't activated at that time are invisible. So you can really see the kind of totality, or at least a lot of a certain memory. Well, much earlier in the conversation, we were talking about fentanyl and, uh, you know, the fact that this, this memory loss and the damage to the hippocampus comes specifically from overdoses of, of fentanyl. So you know, obviously drug use here is um, you know, damaging to memory and to one's cognitive capacities. But when we're talking about uh, taking a traumatic memory and revisiting it in a very safe environment, I was thinking about uh, MDMA studies and um, psilocybin studies for treatment of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Have you researched those at all? I haven't, no. I mean, I've read about them, but <laughs> I can't say I can speak any more uh, intelligently than anyone else who's read some articles. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I won't keep you on the line forever. Uh, I will ask you if there is anything that you think that the audience who's heard, you know, 50 minutes of this conversation uh, should know that we haven't touched on. You know, what I really liked about this book was, again, the process of science. And I think despite all the setbacks it's pretty amazing what people are able to understand um, and how people are able to overcome the barriers and that it's a constant process of not figuring out the truth like there is no hammer of truth in science but of, of always getting a little bit closer to as close as we can get to the truth um, and, and that's what's exciting about science is that it's it's always changing and we're always learning new things it is a self-correcting enterprise, hopefully, when done properly. Right. Ah, all right. Well, uh, Laura Nagiri, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy to talk to you. That was Laura Nagiri, and again, the title of her book is The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. And in the conversation, I mentioned a few of my own memory defects, uh, specifically episodic memory, things that happened to me that I just don't remember, but other people seem to. And we also talked about the commitment to a hypothesis that, you know, when the hypothesis proves unfruitful, a lot of times scientists aren't really just emotionally capable of admitting that that was a blind alley and that they need to move on. And so one of the places where my memory uh, sometimes doesn't perform very well, I remember quotes, but I don't remember who said them. So the quote that came to mind was funeral by funeral theory advances. I looked it up. It's kind of complicated. That particular formulation, funeral by funeral theory advances, comes from economist Paul Samuelson. And he said it in 2003, but he was paraphrasing something that physicist Max Planck used to say in the 1940s, which was, science progresses funeral by funeral. For years, I sent out a daily quotation email. I would take two quotes and pair them and hopefully elucidate a third message, which is not explicit in either quote. So I have not only a good memory for quotes, but I have an eye for them. Like when I'm reading 
through a text, if something pops out at me as something which could be lifted from the context of that text and just presented on its own, and you know, it would be not only meaningful, but verging on profound, well, I tend to highlight or write down or just kind of memorize those passages. And when I say memorize, I mean very imperfectly. So there is a portion of my brain which is has been for years devoted to remembering quotations and finding potential quotations, you know, in larger bodies of text. But I, I have failed to create um, the algorithm or the mechanism that attaches the correct author to that quote. Fortunately, there is the World Wide Web. Obviously, having just listened to that conversation, you know that the mind and personal identity are issues of fascination for me. But ultimately, I think, you know, in a conversation like this, we're probably looking for some prescription, some takeaway message that we can apply to improve our lives. And this book is about uh, an investigation into something which damages memory. So, you know, the reverse of that is what can we do to improve or retain our memory? And I'm afraid the answers are rather prosaic and boring. Get lots of sleep. <laughs> Exercise. Engage in activities that depend upon memory and build memory. Games, things like that. But what really struck me was when Lauren pointed out that anxiety interferes with recall. It is harder to remember something when you feel anxious. So don't feel anxious. Well, how do you not feel anxious? There are probably a variety of ways to combat anxiety, some of them pharmaceutical, which I'm not really interested in. But it seems to me that one piece of low-hanging fruit is just mindfulness meditation. And I'm not about to introduce a sponsor or anything like that. Um, I'm just really impressed with the benefits that accrue from a simple, easy, short daily practice of mindfulness meditation. I'll say no more. Other than to thank the Padverb team, which consists of executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sonia Saw. I'm your host, KMO, and I will be back in one week's time with another interview. I will talk to you then. <laughs>